0: you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter one. And I want to read the first thirteen verses with you. John chapter one. Beginning to read at verse one. This is the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, And now follow the words of our text, verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want to repeat that. Who were born, I'll read 12 with it. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in uh, Salem this morning. A few moments ago we stood at the baptism of Font and we were reminded that this precious little child of Jeremy and Tracy, this little guy... Only several weeks old was born and conceived in sin, worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. In other words, little Everett, along with every other man, woman, and child, comes into this world at eminent enmity with God and with every other member of the human race, stands condemned, and despite his baptism with nothing more, stands eternally lost. And that corresponds precisely with what John writes in his gospel, and he's going to explain that to us in our text. And if you are familiar with John's gospel a little bit, you will know that the central theme of his his gospel is the glory of Jesus as the Son of the living God. That's the central message given the church throughout his gospel. (laughs) And John begins by telling us of the word, spelt with a capital if you notice it, (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. he begins by telling us of the word spelt with a capital meaning the Christ so he begins by telling us of the Christ in his pre-incarnate glory he opens his letter by telling us of Jesus' beginning even before he came into the, in the flesh of Bethlehem in order to further convince his audience of the divinity, the divine nature of Christ, John tells us that Christ was in heaven with the Father already before he was born as a man on earth. Capture with me the inspired wisdom of John in doing that. Being moved by the Holy Spirit, John tells his audience of the word Christ in the beginning, being with God, in order that we may so much the more appreciate his condescending love for us by leaving his father's throne to come on earth to save sinners and as the letter continues we read of Christ coming into the flesh and we see Jesus taking up his earthly ministry he reveals himself first of all to that small inner circle but then as the gospel unfolds he goes beyond the disciples and he identifies himself to the ever widening circle but then we also see him being rejected both in Judea And in Galilee. But again, the Apostle of Love takes care to demonstrate that Christ does not immediately destroy or abandon those who rejected him, but instead he repeatedly makes his tender appeal to sinners in order to convince them of their need to accept him in faith. But as we continue to read his gospel, we begin to see the fierce opposition to Christ's ministry, and we notice that he is constantly being met with with active and bitter resistance. And then by two mighty deeds in particular, that of raising up Lazarus from the dead and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he clearly demonstrates himself as the son of God, but the masses continue to reject him. So Jesus turns once again to that inner circle and he tenderly instructs them in the upper room. And finally... We see his love as he commits his disciples into the care of his heavenly father in the garden. And then at the close of the gospel, by his death, he overcomes the world. And by way of his resurrection, he reveals the meaning of the cross and he opens paradise. And that's a thumbnail sketch. That's a a Reader's Digest version or an overview of the entire gospel of John. But the first 18 verses serve as an introduction to John's gospel. And again, we marvel as we read those few verses, 1 through 13. We discover again the beauty of the composition of his his gospel when we realize that, that already in just those few short verses, John reveals to us Jesus in the beginning, verse 1, Jesus at the creation, verse 3, and Jesus after the fall, verse 5, and Jesus at the Incarnation, verse 11. And when we then read this introduction carefully, then we notice that John lays down a very great principle which is necessary for a proper understanding of all that will follow in his gospel. First, as we said, John is concerned that man must know and believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God come in the flesh to propitiate the sins of the flesh. Secondly, John is determined that man must know that he and every man has been alienated from God and that he must again come to God through Christ. And then finally, in the last verse of the introduction, the verse which we have under consideration this morning as our text, John wants us to know how, how man is to be returned to God's favor. We hear it in the words of our text not of blood. Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so I want to administer God's word to you this morning, using it as my theme, Begotten of God. And following the leading of the text, we will examine, first of all, the false notions of self-styled sonship. Then secondly, we want to learn of the God-ordained means of sonship. And then finally, we also want to draw some conclusions and make a few words of application for ourselves and for our children in the context of a baptismal service. Congregation, the all-inclusive, the all-encompassing thought contained in our text is begotten of God, and that phrase itself immediately ushers us into the central miracle of all of Christianity, The very existence of the church, her source of life and strength, her influence in the home and in the world, all of it proceeds from that fundamental miracle of that new life of the individual soul. The dynamic in each case is, first of all, the new life in the individual Christian, that new life of individuals collectively in the church, enables the congregation as a body to show forth the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that new life, that new life is the source and the force of the church's aggression in the world. Follow this with me. When we listen to the questions asked of Jeremy and Tracy this morning when they presented their little effort for baptism with regards to the condition of their precious little boy... If we considered carefully when the questions were asked, you will remember that it was asked of them <coughs> Do you believe that the Bible teaches that this little child was conceived and born in sin and therefore worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself? Imagine that, if you will. Imagine that. Just a few weeks old, a few months perhaps. And as Paul says in Romans 9, before he had done anything good or bad worthy of condemnation and the answer from the parents was yes we do so believe but the question didn't stop there we then asked do you also believe that we and our children are sanctified in Christ and therefore ought to be baptized and again the answer was yes capture with me now what was said there In the question and the answer, the parents confessed with their Bibles that their child, that little Everett, by virtue of his conception and birth, with nothing more, has no hope of salvation. They confessed that in addition to the baptism, something more is required, and that something more, according to their vows, is that that child needs to be sanctified, or, if you will, that child needs to be made holy in and of and by Christ and this being made new or beginning anew this possibility and this and necessity of being remade or being reborn is a prerequisite for every man, woman, and child in the world. And it is one of the main themes of the entire gospel of John. In the verses we have read, John has been speaking of the ones who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to them. And then John adds that those who believed in him, those who received him, they did so because they had experienced rebirth. And then we notice carefully that John tells us in Scripture that these people experienced new birth and were reborn, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but they were born of God. We hear it already in our text. They were begotten of God. But just what does that mean to be begotten of God? Well, contemporary Christianity <coughs> offers several different answers to the question, and most of those answers, if not all of them, <coughs> are refuted by John in our text. Still today, many sincere people are sincerely wrong on this matter of rebirth, and therefore, following the leading of the text along with the Apostle John, we too we need to clear away some unscriptural views which hinder our ability to understand this aspect of God's truth. Obviously, little has changed since the days of the Apostle John. Still today, much of contemporary Christianity is in a radical conflict with God's own word when it comes to the question of new life in Jesus Christ. And so it will be necessary for us to follow John's example and clear away the many false notions being propagated in many evangelical circles even yet today. In our text of this morning, John contrasts the true manner of rebirth over against primarily three notions. He says, not this way, not that way, not even that way, but only this way, says John. And when we then read the three negatives given by him, then it becomes crystal clear to us that John's very first concern here is to convince men and women to abandon all hope of any involvement of self in this process of regeneration. You'll remember that was the mistake made by Nicodemus already in John chapter 3. And John here in our text immediately dispels any notion that a person can be born again through, through some human effort or agency. And to point out this error is now the main burden of the text of this morning for the verse tells us not of blood, not of the will of man. Not of the will of the flesh. Oh no, says John. Being born again is not a matter of man's will. It's not a matter of man's decision. It's not a matter of man's choosing. No, no, he says. It is of God. And although these three negatives form a unit and all address the same concern, that of human involvement in regeneration, we need to take a few moments to identify each of them, each of these false notions. What does John mean when he says that we are not born into God's family by blood? Well, simply put, John here instructs us that we cannot become children of God by way of blood or heritage, or if you will, we do not become sons or daughters of God simply by virtue of being born of a correct lineage of Christian parents. That's a very dangerous, albeit very common assumption among many Christians. Allow me an illustration here, if I may. Years ago, when certain class structures were still defined and appreciated, men and women spoke of noble blood, or or, if you will, of blue blood. The elite classes, the aristocracy, maintained itself by virtue of a family lineage. Those born in upper class remained upper class by virtue of their birth. And all of those born in the family were automatically part of the elite simply by being born into it. Those of the working class could not achieve that status simply because they were born of less than noble blood. And now using that analogy then, John here immediately dispels the notion that anyone can assume to be or becoming a Christian because of his or her relationship to godly parents or family. You remember that that was the fatal error of the Jews of the New Testament. They believed themselves to be right with God because of their birth as Jews. And when Christ walked among them on this earth, the Jews boasted to him of their special status because of their physical ancestry. We hear them in John 6 saying, We are, we are Abram's children. How proud they were of their lineage and they, and they sheltered in that ancestral heritage the presupposition, or if you will, their assumption went something like this. God's covenant promise was to Abraham and his seed, and we are the physical descendants of Abraham. We are Abraham's seed. Ergo, we are sons of God. And Jesus, however, echoes the thought expressed here in our text and warns the Jews that it was not a physical but a spiritual relationship that was required with Abraham. And in fact, Christ points out that the actions of the Jews identified them not as sons of God. No, says Jesus, if you were really sons of Abraham, you would do the things of Abraham. But even though you are physical descendants of Abraham, you try to kill me. And by that, we know that you are not of God, but you are still of your father, the devil. People, We need to understand this teaching of our Lord. We need to be acutely aware that we may never, ever consider or are, assume ourselves to be Christian by virtue of being born of Christian parents. Being raised in a Christian home, attending Christian school and Christian church is a tremendous blessing and privilege, but in and of itself has no merit towards salvation. no. Christ and John in our text teach us carefully that nothing related to our physical birth or even external privileges can ever make us right with God. And our text goes on. Having dealt with the false notion that our heritage does not translate into automatic sonship, John now continues to remove another great error, an error still very prevalent among modern, contemporary, and pragmatic Christianity. We hear him, not by blood, as he said, but also not through the will of the flesh. To understand that, we need to understand what is meant by flesh. Well, in the New Testament, the word flesh is used to signify all that we are in terms of our, of our natural capacities. Follow with me. The Bible wants us to know clearly that as a result of sin, the fall into sin in the world, Each of us and our children come into this world by nature being dead in sin and trespass. By nature, what comes naturally to us is that we hate God and our neighbor. That's what was born out of our natural inclinations. That is our flesh. And as Paul puts it so succinctly, the flesh profits us nothing. The flesh avails nothing. The flesh or our natural selves can do nothing pleasing to God. In fact, our flesh is at enmity with God. (laughs) And yet, incredibly, in spite of the clear testimony of Scripture, we are confronted daily with those who teach us that spiritually dead men and women can bring themselves to life. They would have us know that men and women can give themselves new life through an exercise of their own will, their own choosing. Fallen men and women can become Christian by making the right decisions. They need to make a conscious choice involving their own emotions. And what John insists that we know here is that men and women can no more become Christian by exercising their will than they can by being born of Christian parents. My dear precious people of God, follow carefully with me for a moment as we see here the contrast and even the conflict of the, the, of the clear Word of God and much of contemporary Christianity. Most Christian churches and most Christian people today have abandoned this central truth of God, and their preaching, their teaching, and evangelistic efforts are comprised of creating atmospheres conducive to eliciting a response. Of an emotion or a decision of man. You've all heard of, or perhaps even experienced, altar calls where dead men and women, spiritually dead men and women, are urged to come forward out of darkness into light, and they do so, they make this atmosphere because <coughs> their theology is compromised, of this mis- is comprised of this misconception. That men and women can choose to be born again. The Arminian error has crept into their theology, and once again, man and not God becomes the central focus in their manner of rebirth. The Bible here in the words of our text sets its face as flint against that false notion and clearly teaches that man can indeed be moved to tears in a service or a revival meeting. Man can indeed be moved under the right circumstances to come forward and even commit his whole life to Christ, but but, but that in and of itself with nothing more will still not transform him into a child of God. Oh no, says John, not by blood, not by heritage, but also not by the will of human flesh. John continues. He wants his audience to know that indeed men and women and children become sons and daughters of God, not by blood, not by the exercise of our own flesh, but neither can man be translated to new life through the will of man. My dear precious people of God, this third negative is very closely related to the second, and yet we need to capture another concept here. Walk with me. It's not uncommon to hear people tell us that they are convinced that men and women can become Christian by their own determination. Surely if one is sufficiently determined to do the right things, surely man can pull himself up out of the darkness by his own bootstraps. Surely if man will only discipline himself to live a godly life, then certainly man can find God's favor, and won't God be pleased with with our obedient and Christian lifestyle? And again, John challenges and repudiates the argument. Oh, indeed, man can, through his hard work and determination, he can achieve many things for himself, morally and ethically. He can discipline himself, he can modify his behavior to such an extent that through his own efforts, he would lead an exemplary life of piety and godliness. In other words, man can discipline himself to live a very godly life, Christ-like life even, but, but, but according to our text, that will still not make him a child of God. No, says John. In order to become a child of God, man needs to be given God's life. And that becomes ours only from God on the basis of God's sovereign electing grace in Jesus Christ. And that now is the burden of John's heart throughout all of his gospel. Having clearly taught how one is not made right with God, he then goes on to instruct us how one does become a child of God. And we hear him in our text not by being born of Christian parents. Not by exercising our own decision. Not by determining to live a Christian life in our own strength. No, away with it all, says John. A pox on it all. Of God's own will, he begot us with the word of truth. Capture this with me. It is indeed true that in order to receive new life, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That needs to be underscored, first of all. There is no other name under heaven or, or by earth by which men can be saved. And John tells us that Jesus gives power to become children to all who believe in the Lord. But now, and here we come to the to the crucial hub of the matter. And this is where we part company with most of contemporary Christianity. But says John, yes, you must believe. But at the same time, you must also know that if you do believe, It is only because God has taken the divine initiative to enable you to believe in him. In other words, man never, never ever makes the first move towards God. No, it's always God who searches out and finds his own, creating faith in the heart, enabling men and women, dead men and women women who are dead in sin and trespass, enabling them to respond in faith. No one could ever be saved. No one would ever be saved without that prior work of God. And God performs that miracle of rebirth out of sheer grace through the preaching of the word of God. And congregation, I am painfully aware that many people, even some Christian people, sincere Christian people, will not like what is being taught here. In fact, many very sincere and well-intentioned Christians are offended when the sovereignty of God in matters of salvation is taught. And although that saddens us, it ought not to surprise us. For you see, from the very beginning, this doctrine of sovereign grace has been offensive to modern autonomous man, and correctly so. You see, man's greatest sin, beginning already in paradise, was what? Human pride. It was pride that brought ruin upon God's creation order. And now this doctrine strips man of his human self and gives all the glory to God. Walk carefully with me for a moment as we work this out together. I am acutely aware that the doctrine of sovereign grace is the minority position among churches today. I appreciate also the fact that this unpopular doctrine, this doctrinal truth, is becoming increasingly more difficult to maintain. It's frequently argued that the differences between the two systems seem to be minor and insignificant, and one could wonder if it's really all that important. Do such apparently minor differences warrant such warning of different views with regards to matters of salvation? The truths taught us here at our text were already threatened. They were crucial. They were at the very heart of the great Protestant Reformation. And now we might ask ourselves, as many do, was it really necessary for our forefathers to separate themselves from so many other Christians over this seemingly insignificant matter? Was that not sin? My dear precious people of God, although the difference would initially on the surface seem to be minor. In fact, when taken to their logical conclusion, the differences are radical and irreconcilable. You see, the biblical doctrine of rebirth takes everything away from man and gives it all to God. It denies man of any boasting in his own efforts and gives all of the glory to God. In fact, it allows God to be God and acknowledges man to be what he is. Nothing apart from God. And that's precisely why so many people find the doctrines of grace offensive. Man gets no credit for his efforts. In the final analysis, the one position gives to man power and ability which the Bible denies him. And at the same time, it robs God of the honor and the glory with which Scripture crowns him. It gives man credit for God's work. And consequently, how we understand these doctrines of salvation by grace will out of necessity influence our entire concept of God and of man. You see, the one system proclaims a God who saves; the other speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. One makes salvation dependent on the work of a sovereign God; the other credits man for, for God credits the work that work to man. One regards it as God's gift of salvation; the other presents it as man's contribution towards salvation. One gives all the praise and the glory to God; the other wants, it, at minimum, to share in God's glory. And now the one point that God's word insists of us to believe in our text is that sinners do not in any sense at all save themselves. They do not even cooperate or contribute one iota towards no, says our text. First, last, whole, entire, past, present, and future. It is not by blood, not by flesh, not by will, no. It is of Almighty God to Him be the glory, and to him alone be the glory. We need to be clear on this matter. When man understands who he is in and of himself, and when then at the same time he comes to understand who God truly is, then man looks up from his own hopeless condition, and then man realizes what God has done, and then he jubilantly and triumphantly cries out, Oh, Lord, my God, how great thou art. And so when we stand around the baptismal font and we confess that every one of us was conceived and born in sin, needing to be born again, has God promised that he would save us because we were born in a home of Christian parents? No, not by blood. Will little Everett be saved then by by when he grows to maturity by exercising his own will or choosing to be born again? No, not by flesh. Will he be saved then by doing all the right things and living a Christian life? No, not by the will of man. Will he then be saved because of his baptism? No. Well, how then can he be saved? And the answer is found in our text. Only by being begotten of God by being born again, by water and the Spirit. I can almost hear you forming the question, but if baptism doesn't guarantee our salvation, what good is it then? What does it mean? Well, listen with me again to the form as we read it together earlier. When we baptize into the name of the Father, God witnesses and seals unto us that God makes an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us as his children. When we baptize into the name of the Son, Christ seals unto us that he washes us in his blood from all our sin. And when we baptize into the name of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit assures us that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ. Marvel with me of the rich promises of God given here to Everett this morning and to Jeremy and Tracy and to each of us. In baptism, God comes to us and visibly demonstrates for us the gospel promise. In baptism we see God's promises which are preached to you each Sunday again. God the Father has made an eternal covenant of grace. I will be your God and you will be my people. In baptism we see the precious blood of Christ has been spilled at Golgotha to wash away all of our sin. And in baptism, we are reminded that God the Spirit will make our hearts his home. These promises are given to Everett this morning and to each of us and to our children in our own baptism. But, 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 the form gives us more. We read, just as in all covenants, there are two parts. Therefore, we, meaning each and every one of us, are obliged to a new obedience, namely, that we will cleave to this one God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strength, that we forsake the world, crucify our old nature, and walk in a godly life. Did you hear that, congregation? God's covenant promises are true and sure and abiding. It is an eternal covenant, but as the Catechism puts it so succinctly in another place, When it asks, how are we made right with God? The answer there reads, we need to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Therefore, the baptismal form, in keeping with the truth given us in the text this morning, admonishes each of us as parents, first of all, to instruct our children in these things as soon as they are able to understand. We are to hold before our children's eyes God's rich promises given in their baptism. And then we are to urge them to accept his promise with believing hearts and embrace these promises as their own. That's what Jeremy and Tracy promised at the font that they would do. People of God, do not make the mistake of the Pharisees that we assume that we are saved because of our Christian parents or heritage. Do not be seduced by the error that claims you can decide the matter for yourself. No, away with it all. It is all of God and it's all of grace. It's all of God's choosing. Trust God's promises. He holds them all before your eyes in the sacrament of baptism. In your own baptism, he has promised to be your God. Now go on and instruct your children in these things. Urge them to embrace the promises and then do not fail to go to God in your daily prayers, reminding God of his promises, reminding him of that mark on your child's forehead and then pray that we and our children may have been born to be born again. To any here perhaps this morning who were to ask sincerely out of an earnest spiritual anxiety, how can I be born again? God grants me the liberty to say to you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved no one comes to Christ with penitent heart and contrite spirit and has ever been turned away. In other words then, hear me well. In other words then, if you earnestly want to be saved, it has already been given you of God. If only you will believe it. There is new life for you which only God can give and he does so at the foot of the cross of Golgotha. That life, that new life, he grants to all who crown him Lord of lords and King of kings. Resting wholly on his merit, confiding only in his mercy, go forward and in his might, trusting that he is faithful. He will do it. So may it be for each of us and our children. Shall we pray? But says the mercy of our Lord, I'll be a God to thee. I'll bless thy numerous race, and they shall be a seed to me. Thus, to the parents and to their seed shall thy salvation come, and numerous households meet at last.